0: Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you to this first of three public lectures in the Charles E. Test MD Distinguished Visiting Scholar Seminars for the academic year two thousand three-two thousand four. My name is Shauna Segrew and I'm the Associate Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is hosting this event. Uh, Founded in 2001, the Charles E. Test M.D. Distinguished Visiting Scholar Seminars bring to Princeton a distinguished scholar who exemplifies the highest possible standards of excellence in the humanities and social sciences to enrich understanding of American ideals and institutions. This year, the institution that is the focus of this annual seminar series is, quite appropriately, (laughs) marriage. Together with family, marriage is perhaps our nation's most important social institution, and yet it is one whose vitality is too often taken for granted to the detriment of all of us. As our nation faces unprecedented legal and cultural challenges to this fundamental institution, the time is right for us to reflect upon the meaning and significance of marriage anew. Here to assist us with these reflections is Elizabeth Fox Genovese, whom we are deeply honored to host as this year's Charles E. Test, M.D., Distinguished Visiting Scholar. Elizabeth Fox Genovese is the Eleanor Raoul Professor of the Humanities and Professor of History at Emory University, where she was also the founding director of the Institute for Women's Studies a celebrated author, historian, and scholar of women's issues. Her most recent publications include Women and the Future of the Family, published in 2000, Reconstructing History, the Emergence of a Historical Society, co-edited with Elizabeth Lash Quinn, uh, published in 1999, Feminism is Not the Story of My Life, How the Elite Women's Movement Has Lost Touch with Real Women's Concerns, or Women's Real Concerns, uh, published in 1996. Feminism Without Illusions, A Critique of Individualism, published in 1991. And Within the Plantation Household, Black and White Women of the Old South, published in 1988. Uh, In addition to being a scholar of the highest possible caliber, Dr. Fox Genovese gives of herself generously to numerous scholarly associations. She serves on the G.T. Chesterton Institute Advisory Board, the Board of Governors of the Historical Society, the Institute for Faith and Reason Advisory Board, and the Center for Religion and Democracy Advisory Board. And I'm also pleased to say she's the chair of the Madison Program's Council on Moral and Political Thought, which consists of scholars in the humanities and social sciences who advance civics in higher education. In recognition of her outstanding scholarly contributions, Professor Fox Genovese was recently awarded the 2003 National Humanities Medal. Today in her first of three public meditations on the institution of marriage, her chosen topic is titled Marriage 101, Male and Female Created He, Them. On Wednesday, she will speak on Marriage 102, Different or Equal, the Compromise of Separate Spheres. And a week from today, uh, this same time and place, her public address will be titled Marriage on Trial. Please join me at this time in extending a very warm welcome to Professor Elizabeth Fox Genovese.
1: Thank you, Saguna, and thank you, Shauna, and thank you all. It's a really a great pleasure to be here. I want to make sure I'm doing this mic properly. Since Shauna announced my titles, you will know that although my focus ultimately is on the current crisis in marriage, I am moving us back in time to try to put it in some historical context and perspective. It's impossible to give a history of marriage even in three lectures. So what I will offer you is a series of vignettes of issues in marriage that I think may provide some context for the current crisis, and the final lecture will explicitly deal with contemporary issues. Until recently, not even the harshest critics denied that for better or worse, the nature and purpose of marriage are to uh, unite a man and a woman. Much of the rising tide of criticism leveled at marriage focuses precisely on the tensions of attempting to bridge sexual difference. Men bully, abuse, trivialize, and hopelessly misunderstand women. Women ensnare, emasculate, nag, and cheat on men. The litany goes on, and many of the complaints that Archie and Edith Bunker launched at one another in All in the Family sound disconcertingly similar to those of early modern folk culture or even the comedies of Aristophanes. Among the gods of the ancient Greeks, Herod nagged Zeus and Zeus philandered, strewing children in his wake. These lectures will offer a series of vignettes intended to illuminate the changing social function of marriage and the current campaign to destroy marriage as a uniquely valuable social bond and the essential cornerstone of cohesive society, and you'll permit me, I, I want to make one thing clear from the start, because I will try in the course of these lectures to reorient our discussion a little bit. Um, openness to children is absolutely central to marriage. It's frequently been advanced as a justification for marriage, and today continues to be advanced by many who believe in marriage as the paramount justification for marriage, at least until the final lecture. I shall talk very little about children. Uh, my interest in these lectures is sorting out marriage as a unique good in its own right and trying to s- center the discussion there. Having originated more as a relation between families, tribes, or clans than between individuals, marriage has gradually been transformed into an exclusively personal relation, a matter of an individual's right to specific benefits and privileges, and perhaps above all, the right to community recognition and approval. Thus, the institution that anchored and transmitted legitimate authority has emerged as the frontline target of a comprehensive attack on any notion of legitimate authority natural or divine. The flurry of opinions on the crisis of marriage and the family obscures the magnitude of this transformation, but we can ill afford to ignore its implications. In modern times, complaints about marriage have accelerated. Ironically, this growing dissatisfaction has corresponded with the most sustained attempt to link marriage to romantic love, personal fulfillment. Love and marriage may, as the song would have it, go together like a horse and carriage, but by no means necessarily. First, let us consider premodern forms of marriage, including the features that have provoked feminists, in particular to dismiss all forms of marriage as blatantly patriarchal and oppressive, of women, Genesis tells us that God created man and woman for each other, and I'm quoting male and female he created them, and enjoined them to be fruitful and multiply. And woman he especially created as the true companion for man who welcomed her as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The author of Genesis reflects, Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Disobedience to God cost Adam and Eve banishment from Eden. God told Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And he told Eve, Eve, In pain you shall bring forth children. But even that original sin did not destroy their complementary natures as man and woman, and their expulsion inaugurated the fallen human history of marriage. The Old Testament often offers a less than appealing picture of marriage, which helps to explain the outrage of some feminist critics. Beginning with Abraham, the patriarchs fathered children with concubines, took second and third wives, and frequently treated their wives as little more than servants. Even Jacob, with his many admirable qualities and his deep love for Rachel, during the years when Rachel seemed barren, fathered children by her sister, Leah, whom he had previously repudiated to marry Rachel. Marriage frequently seemed intended solely to produce sons and to, produ- to protect the patrimony of the tribes of Israel. Thus, the daughters of Zelophiad are told they may marry whom they please, provided that they marry only, quote, within the family of the tribe of their father, so that the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. In a similar spirit, if a man dies without having a son, his brother must marry the widow, and the first son she bears him shall succeed to the name of the brother who is dead, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And the house of the man who refuses this obligation to build up his brother's house will be called the house of him that had his sandal pulled off because the woman who was denied this right was entitled to pull off the man's sandal in a rare act of sanctioned disrespect. In these passages, the importance of family and tribe demonstrably trumps the mere human relations of man and woman. Yet the Old Testament, like other ancient sacred texts and myths, also recognizes the force of love, which it frequently depicts as destructive. Men and women pay equally for adultery, to which both are considered susceptible. forgive. Me. The man who commits adultery must be killed and the woman with him. But in most other respects, equality falters. Thus, if a man dislikes his wife or finds some indecency in her, he may divorce her simply by putting a bill of divorce in her hands. It should be noted that during the period of the second temple, just before the rise of the Mishnah, A woman could similarly divorce a man, but that was not the common pattern any more than it was in Islam, which, of course, drew upon the same text. These rules eerily combine primitive and postmodern views of personal relations in ways echoed in some of Toni Morrison's fiction. Disruptive passion prototypically in David's obsession with Bathsheba and its brutal consequences recur throughout the Old Testament, as do examples of devoted love between a husband and a wife. But the emphasis consistently falls on marriage as the foundational social bond. What the Old Testament tells as stories and sets of rules and laws, anthropologists discuss as the forms of social life and social structures. Claude Lévi-Strauss, the highly regarded French structuralist anthropologist, has argued that the basic roots of complex societies lie in the exchange of women. Primitive groups, like the early Hebrew tribes, are inclined to marry within the tribe with the goal, as Deuteronomy puts it, of strengthening the house. Modern societies frown on this practice of endogamy. As societies became more complex, they began to favor exogamy, or marriage outside the immediate kin group. And in many societies, including the Brazilian societies studied by Levi Strauss, exogamous marriage typically meant the exchange of women. In other words, the ties between two groups did not result from the vagaries of personal choice that might have sent a boy to another tribe while welcoming one of that tribe's girls in return. In such patrilineal societies, men were responsible for building the strength of the tribe and women were effectively treated as bargaining chips to cement alliances or consolidate other political goals. The role of marriage in consolidating political alliances is readily apparent in the history of ruling families. European ruling houses invariably married to realize political goals and would probably have lost in prestige had they not. One of the most important examples concerns a marriage that did not occur. Elizabeth I of England, throughout her long reign, entertained a succession of suitors, each with um, very important diplomatic and political uh, attributes, each of whom she eventually declined. In entertaining them, she was dangling before them the prize of her person and her kingdom and thereby gaining large and small advantages for it. In refusing them, she protected her own position as ruler, which the presence of a husband would have compromised if only by raising the question of her proper wifely deference to him. In the more usual version of these alliances, the man was the ruler, which reduced but did not necessarily eliminate the problem of domestic power relations, especially when the royal bride came from a powerful family. During the 18th and early 19th centuries, the Habsburgs showed a special talent for marrying daughters for maximum political leverage. First, the meddlesome Marie Antoinette to Louis XVI, and then the unremarkable but presumably fertile Marie-Louise to Napoleon, who divorced Josephine to get an heir. Marriage, as its critics delight in pointing out, has notoriously been used to further the economic interests of families, often in transactions that traded impecunious social distinction for socially lackluster wealth. Such transactions are as old as marriage itself, even when they are more symbolic than substantive. In sealing a marriage, the family of one of the prospective couples would offer gifts and tribute to the other's. And in some instances, gifts were exchanged. The gift has figured as a powerful symbol throughout virtually all cultures, the tangible embodiment and confirmation of intangible promises and intentions. In ancient societies, the gift for a marriage frequently took the form of a bride price, a sum of money, a bundle of goods, or even a specified number of years of work for the bride's family. Jacob, you will recall, having worked seven years for Leah, whom he didn't want to marry, but she was the older sister, worked another seven for Rachel, whom he very much did want to marry. The traces of bride price and its more familiar counterpart, dowry, persist in various forms in much of the world although for significant reasons which will become apparent they have largely disappeared in the economically developed and highly individualistic western nations while the bride price is paid by the prospective groom's family to the family of the bride the dowry is paid by the by the family of the prospective bride to the family of the groom. The logic is simple. In societies or social classes that depend heavily upon the labor of women and that value reproduction, men pay a bride price to the families of the prospective bride for the loss of her services. In societies or social classes in which the status, wealth, education or military prowess of men outweighs the economic value of the woman's labor and fertility, her family pays a dowry to him the privilege of being joined to him. Contemporary India offers a clear example. There, the two lower castes, which perform heavy labor, have retained the practice of bride price, while the two upper castes, which specialize in the professions, politics, and business, have adopted the practice of dowry, in theory to compensate the man's family for the cost of his education. Since the Middle Ages, Western European society has favored the dowry, although women's labor long remained essential to peasant families, and cases of outright wife selling may be found as late as the 19th century, and American society has followed suit. Among the upper classes, dowries were often substantial, and the inability to amass them or to amass an adequate dowry for only one daughter could result in a young woman's failure to marry. Convents provided an alternative to marriage, and permitted a young woman to leave her parents' home, but they too required dowries, albeit more modest ones than those demanded by the greedy families of eligible young men. Dowries also afforded a unique way to advance the social standing of a wealthy but not noble family. In a world divided into a state, legally defined classes, which although less rigid than Indian castes, were notably less flexible than modern class systems, a sufficiently lucrative dowry might suffice to move a young French woman of the third estate into the second estate, the nobility. As the practice spread, especially during the 18th century, it earned the quaintly inelegant description of manuring one's fields. After the French Revolution abolished the system of estates, the French joined the British and a growing number of European societies in the comparative fluidity of a class system that granted growing freedom to mere wealth to determine social standing. The impact on marriage, especially among the wealthier and better born, was immediate and revealingly recorded in the great 19th century novels. Those developments introduced a new, if seriously limited, measure of sexual equality into marriage, opening new opportunities, but simultaneously eroding the strength of marital bonds and the next lecture will more fully explore these developments. In short, marriage has secured a vast web of social, political, and economic functions. Today, under the rising tide of radical individualism, those functions seem nearly invisible, although they remain considerably more important than most Americans are willing to acknowledge. And some of you may have noted the, the literature and commentary on developments during the 1980s when all of a sudden women gained access to the professions and professional men began to marry professional women who in effect were bringing the dowry of their education and their income potential rather than marrying women of less education and less earning potential. So it it persists among us in however hidden form. The ideology of marrying, not marrying, or divorcing, all for love, throws a veil over marriage's more practical dimensions. Bitter divorces, prenuptial contracts, child support payments, and custody battles serve as painful reminders. But even so, the emphasis continues to fall on the quest for personal happiness. For most of history, the social, economic, and political functions of marriage predominated. In many communities, parents and other relatives played an important role in securing suitable marriage partners for their children. In India, for example, Arranged marriages were the rule, and even child marriages were common. Yet even in circumstances in which individuals were positioned to make personal choices, laws that reinforced the relation between marriage and national sovereignty could thwart their intentions. In the 19th century southern United States, to take one example, the Cherokee Indians, who considered themselves a sovereign nation, had strict laws governing marriage between women who were members of the nation and black and white men who were not. Since the Cherokee had a matrilineal society, membership could only be transmitted or conferred through a woman. Over the course of the century, the ability of black men to claim Cherokee citizenship through marriage to a Cherokee woman declined precipitously till it was eliminated entirely as the Cherokee became more race conscious and more protective of their national status. They correctly viewed marriage as an integral part of their sovereignty as a nation. The combined weight of the social, political, and economic functions of marriage underscores its significance as the foundational social unit. To grasp the relevant perspective demands an extraordinary effort of imagination from those steeped in modern and postmodern assumptions about the nature of the human person and human relations. Some... Notably, the historian Colin Morris argued that the individual and the conception of individualism appeared in England as early as the 11th and 12th centuries. And there are strong arguments, although not those upon which Morris relies, that Christianity nurtured a specific conception of the individual, both with respect to the quest for personal holiness and the sense of individual moral responsibility. Because of the slippery nature of definitions, it is ultimately pointless to quarrel with Morris, but it is essential to understand that most people in Britain, Europe, and throughout the world saw themselves primarily, if not exclusively, as the member of a group, usually a family, first, and beyond it a clan, tribe, community, or people, a race, as many of them would say. When so large a share of social order depended upon marriage, love could only be viewed as disruptive. Like Greek and Roman myths, medieval culture abounded with tales of unruly and untamable passions, just as the more popular culture delighted in tales of cuckolded husbands. Writing Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare was drawing upon a rich tradition of consuming loves that defied the exigencies of political order and political enmities. The middle of the 12th century witnessed the emergence of a tradition of courtly love it would culminate in the 13th and persist into the 14th. Intended to soften and civilize the brutality of early medieval culture, courtly love inaugurated a new vision of love and prescriptions for the ways in which a proper knight should treat his lady. By definition, this lady, the knight's true love, his guiding star, was not his wife, but a lady of beauty and social position whom he served through acts of fealty and valor. The cycle of Arthurian legends became a central piece of the culture of courtly love. Sir Lancelot's love for Guinevere, the wife of King Arthur, figures prominently in the cycle and doubtless influenced the other legends that comprise it. Among the best known, a special place belongs to the story of Tristan and Isolde, or Ise, um, which did not originate in the cycle, but was absorbed into it. According to the best known versions of the tale, written by Gottfried von Strasbourg in the first decade of the 13th century, Sir Tristan was entrusted by his uncle, King Mark of Cornwall, to go to Ireland to escort the king's prospective bride, the Irish Isolde, to Cornwall. During the voyage, her attendant gave them a love potion, which instilled an undying passion. Respecting the claims of kinship, as well as social and political obligation, they remained on their assigned course. Isolde married King Mark, And Tristan married another, also named Isolde, but never consummated the marriage. Tristan's military responsibilities took him away, but after receiving a fatal wound, he returned to Cornwall to seek Isolde, who had twice previously saved him from death. His jealous wife learned of his intentions and foiled the plan. Tristan died desolate, And Isolde, who arrived minutes too late to save him, lay down in his arms and died with him. It's worth noting, by the way, there was not really time and space to to go on at length on this issue, um, how much these passionate, consuming loves are divorced from sexual consummation very foreign to the modern sensibility, but but true love in this context is something that verges on the holy. It is almost ethereal. Few tales better or more poignantly in- illustrate the potential conflict between love and marriage, which helps to explain why it has been so frequently retold. Among the many who have done so, we may note Paul Hamilton Hayne, a Author of The American South, Frederick Manning, William Morris, Algernon Charles Swinburne, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and Thomas Mann. Towering above all, Richard Wagner's opera, Tristan und Isolde, powerfully affected countless writers and painters in various countries and helped to consolidate the modern myth of Liebestod, death for or through love. However flamboyant and informed by modern themes, Wagner's treatment captures the essence of the original medieval sensibility. Love is inherently dangerous and usually deadly. It is not compatible with social order and has nothing to do with the rearing of children, the predictable appearance of meals, or the observance of basic social conventions. George Bizet memorably captured the sensibility in Carbon's Habanera, um, in the opera of the same name, in which he announces that love is a rebellious bird, a child of Bohemia that has never, never known any kind of love. If you do not love me, I love you. If I love you, watch out for yourself. And Carmen's love, like that of Tristan and Isolde, ends in death. How could it be otherwise? Consuming, all-absorbing passion is inherently at odds with any form of authority which its very nature defies. When authors like Kate Chopin, Willa Cather, and Thomas Mann weave music, sometimes explicitly Wagner, into their representations of love, They treat it as the equivalent of a love potion that takes possession of the individual's senses with the same effects as an addiction or an obsession. In this trance, in which love reigns supreme, desire may fix upon any object, including a person of the same sex, or as Shakespeare, apparently eager to underscore the absurdity, suggests in A a Midsummer Night's Dream, Upon an animal, the stories of passion weave a special web of longing, frequently drawing the lover and the reader back to the world of childhood and buried desires to merge with the mother in an all-encompassing love. These are the loves that, in Carmen's words, know no law. And it is in their very lawlessness that they depart from and often threaten marriage. It is nonetheless worth noting that in the medieval tales of courtly love, even the most consuming loves are not permitted to threaten marriage as an institution. At most, they can deprive a King Mark of a beloved wife who dies of love for another. But she doesn't divorce him. To our modern sensibilities, the arresting features of these attitudes may well be the assumption that marriage is not built upon and may not even require love, which obeys its own frequently disruptive laws. Throughout most of history, Europeans, like most people, including the Cherokee, most Muslims, and the Hindus of Southeast Asia, have viewed marriage as much too serious and consequential a matter to be left to the vagaries of personal choice, especially when those choosing were mere adolescents. Marriage was the responsibility of adults, those who could properly evaluate the social, economic, and political consequences of a particular union. At the beginning of the 19th century, when the idea of romantic love was gaining new momentum, Hegel, in the philosophy of right, defended arranged marriages. Planned by sober and dispassionate heads, arranged marriages had incomparably better prospects for survival than the rash unions of impetuous young lovers. Love might not follow from arranged marriages, although Hegel thought that more often than not it would. Primarily, he argued, because the prior agreement between the two families and the shared context would give the young couple an additional incentive to love one another. They were taking their place in a social network. One way or another, love had little to do with anything of importance and could always be accommodated on the side as a wide variety of elite men and no few elite women understood. In pre-modern hierarchical societies, married men might pursue one or more liaisons with women of their own class or dally with women of the lower classes or both. Kings regularly had what the French called a maîtresse en titre, who frequently had a recognized place at court, and not infrequently lesser amusements on the side. Women, not least because of the risk of pregnancy, enjoyed somewhat less freedom in this regard, but many engaged in sequential or simultaneous affairs, either while well married or after a husband's death. In one way or another, all of the players in this pre-modern social drama understood the importance of marriage to the social, economic, and political context of their lives, to the cohesion of their society. Eudora Welty, the Southern writer who's just recently died, joked about Southerners that the first question they asked upon meeting a newcomer was, who are your people and where are you from? Which was closely followed by and which church do you attend? In the, that located someone. That was enough. In the pre-modern world of clans and tribes, one's people carried even greater significance for family grounded and defined what today is known as the individual's identity. The self was un- understood as the articulation or expression of the group, which was viewed as prior to it not as an autonomous being that assumes and discards commitments at will. The reasons were preeminently practical. Survival as a lone or independent individual remained tremendously difficult for men and virtually impossible for women. Couldn't just go get an apartment and a job in a city. Access to food to shelter from the elements and to protection from human and animal marauders was a problem for most people throughout the globe. Marriages bound peasants and villagers as well as nobles and kings into indispensable social, economic, and political marriages. Throughout Catholic Europe and in much of Protestant Europe as well, during the many centuries before the advent of secular state census records, the Church kept the official records of a person's existence and in this respect ranked as the premier custodian of marriage. Dowries, which retained considerable importance, inventories of household goods, wills, and other legal matters pertaining to the use and transmission of property were handled by notaries who kept extensive records of them. But marriage, birth, and death fell to the preserve of the church. And in the eyes of the church, marriage was a sacrament. Not until 1786, on the eve of the French Revolution with trouble brewing, were Protestant marriages recognized in France, and even then, Jewish and Muslim marriages were not. In France and elsewhere, the advent of a full-blown secular state heralded the recognition of civil marriage, but throughout the world, religious marriage retained its predominance. Just as Torah and the Bible were expected to govern marriage for Jews and Christians, so was Shari Ra expected to govern marriage for Muslims. Today we are awash in complaints against traditional religious marriage codes. Feminists have taken the lead in protesting their assumptions and provisions, primarily because of their alleged subordination of women. And to give the feminist devil her due, traditional religions do at their best, place a woman under the control and direction of her husband, and at their worst, legitimate both his abuse and his potential abandonment of her earlier in discussing god's punishment for eve upon her expulsion from eden i left out the part that's my husband's favorite part your your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you and by now we have been well schooled by Feminist critics, in the countless instances in which both Old and New Testaments seem to promote men's domination of women. Those same critics, however, have turned at least to the texts of the New Testament to prove that Christianity favors the equality of women and men. Mercifully, my purposes here do not include a resolution of those apparent contradictions. Pre-modern marriages throughout the globe have disproportionately favored the domination or headship of men. Our forebears in virtually every culture have tolerated a husband's beating or chastising his wife. Many have tolerated his taking more than one wife. No few have permitted him to repudiate her if she fails to bear children. Male infertility seems to have escaped their imaginative grasp, and virtually all have regarded men, fathers, brothers, sons who have come of age, as her natural representative in the public sphere. In short, traditional religions have concurred with traditional political regimes in viewing the man as the natural head of the household. This attribution of authority alone has been enough to lead feminist women and sympathetic men to regard the very idea of sexual difference with suspicion, if not outright hostility. Yet their response misses an important point. Head of household, though he might be, the husband and father was also its delegate. And in his absence, his place could be filled by the next senior member of the household, normally his wife, if none of his sons had come of age. We have no justification for seeking sexual symmetry in some mythic golden age and then blaming some putative rise of patriarchy for the imprisonment and brutalization of women within marriage. Quests for a matriarchal past have proved fruitless, although there have been a number of matrilineal societies like the Cherokee. One culture and religion after another, notwithstanding differences on countless matters, have adopted the same foundational premises. First, the human species divides into males and females who are at once mutually attracted and sufficiently different to be mutually antagonistic but whose cooperation is necessary to the perpetuation of the human race, not merely its reproduction in the species, but its culture and institutions. Marriage binds them together into what Willa Cather brilliantly called a state of mortal enmity, as well as into bonds of sacramental love. Second, and more important from the perspective of civilization and the species, marriage proposes a reconciliation of the most fundamental natural difference among human beings, sex. For to flee from engaging that difference is ultimately to flee from engaging all others. It might make us thoughtful that in broad historical perspective, Marriage has not been about the gratification, much less the rights of the individual, but about the good of society. Armed with postmodern sophistication about change and the historicity of values and institutions, we as a culture seem to be rushing headlong toward the abolition of marriage as we transform it to conform to our personal desires we seem to have discarded the reasons that previous generations defended it, notably its ability to ease the antagonism of sexual difference, to promote economic well-being and social stability, to ground legitimate secular authority, and infuse the most important social bonds with a sacramental character. We still cherish and even idealize economic well-being, which we hold to the high standard of contemporary American prosperity, but we want no strings attached. As for authority, whether natural, secular, or divine, we want no part of it. And ultimately, the essence of marriage is the authority that derives from the acknowledgement and accommodation of the reality of difference, notably the fundamental sexual difference between women and men. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Professor Fox Genovese, for that uh, panoramic historical and cultural um, picture of marriage. The floor is open for questions. It is the tradition of the Madison program to let students lead with questions. I know you may need a moment to digest what she said, but the floor is open. Yes, Katherine Roberts.
1: It's an excellent question, and obviously that's the challenge that faces us. I was not for one second defending those practices, of which I markedly disapprove. Um, What I was trying to do was to lay out a picture of the persistence of marriage through a period of radical and uh, cultural change, very long, evolving cultural change, and to put marriage as we see it in the context of other cultures and other societies, because that's the origin of our own culture. But many of the practices that we don't like very much still exist in other parts of the world because of the belief that that is the only way to ensure the stability of the group. When the outside world is perceived as dangerous and potentially threatening, then the problem of cohesion becomes acute. We have deluded ourselves into thinking that cohesion is voluntary or contractual. No, we either love and leave or we sue. Um, no, it, it's, it's, we have completely diluted. So I put that in not in the least to defend that content of marriage, but rather to try to sketch out the very long history of the function of marriage. Could I just follow up to that
0: question to see if we can draw out uh, an. Information? As I take to be one of the central thrusts of, of your argument, um, you point to the need for marriage as a social institution, not simply based on consent, but as something um, that has uh, a deep history behind it, uh, culture, cultural sanctions that exist um, to, to stabilize it as well. Uh, and, and in that, you point to social stability as coming from that, love being something that is disruptive. But that social stability seemed to have come at a cost, and particularly a cost borne perhaps disproportionately by women. Uh, for those who would see that there's some good in traditional marriage but appreciate that the history has often been one that has born, been born at the cost of women, is, is there some sort of progressive... Um, Viewpoint that you want to put put forth that you know would would allow us to have the best of both worlds if you will, could we have traditional marriage and uh and not have women subordinated at the same time, given all the tales that you you had presented to us
1: um, I think i I am inclined to think we can, although I think it's a challenge, um but I would begin by pointing out that w- Inescapably, when people like us, all of us in this room, discuss these issues, we're talking about a small fraction of the world's population. Um, the majority of the world still lives in one or another form of poverty in which the need for marriage, for survival, is Paramount and in which the forces of global capitalism are tearing apart whatever remained of peasant com- communities in Southeast Asia and Africa, and elsewhere, so that um, that 's one issue I find frankly the issue of male headship probably the single most difficult one um, First of all, and I'll talk next time about companionate marriage and marriage for love, and that has equally become part of our tradition, and it has entailed a division of responsibilities. Um, In my household, I am the one who knows how to drive a car, fix a computer, balance a checkbook, um, you name it. All of it. Um, And um, my husband has recently learned to use a computer, but um, (laughs) the solving problems when it doesn't function properly is still a bit of a challenge. Um, There is some way in which to any i think anyone who knows us he is male and i am female i do a lot of the activities traditionally viewed as male male we do share about as much as it is possible to share um, and yet there is a quality of male leadership. Lord knows on what issue or at what point. It varies for each, I'm serious, it varies for each couple. But very practically, what sociologists say, and especially my friend Brad Wilcox, who's doing excellent work on this topic, um, there's got to be something in marriage for men. Um, There has to be some reason to assume the responsibilities and burdens. Uh, marriage is ultimately about the sacrifice of rights for everyone. We're all taking on new duties and responsibilities. And at the moment I'm I'm very resistant to status directives that tell people how to live their lives. St. Paul in Galatians talks about the husband as head of the family but how he has to cherish his wife as his own body that that balance between putting her first and his being head I don't know what the words mean except as different couples live them thank you
0: other student questions yes
2: when you were
1: It should be. Um, it depends upon the background of the woman, because if we're talking about middle class women, they probably don't do for their families of origin what they do for their families of choice, the, the, the families they marry into. In other words, um, young women who are college students do, are not normally these days taking care of younger siblings and doing the laundry and cooking meals for a family of eight um so that and that the bride price was to compensate the girl's parents for losing her very valuable labor in 16th century france there are countless proverbs to show that wives were chosen more for their ability to work Their skills as workers than for their beauty in any conventional sense, but was not seen as a barrier to love, mutual sexual pleasure, the rest of it. This was simply a highly prized quality in a woman. The
0: floor is open.
1: Okay, I'll try. It's I see. I think I see what you're getting at, and you have very helpfully pushed me to be clear about something. I think the moral of the story of courtly love, and it runs right down through Liebestod and Thomas Mann, the the modern writers, certainly Kate Chopin's *The Awakening*, which I think I'll mention in the next lecture, um, is that it is so consuming. As to be destructive in the end, it is a passion that consumes it has no place to go the The love that fuels a marriage in principle one hopes is a love that grows and changes it's, the courtly love is predicated on that first adolescent passion the Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story, that when the other is all in all and it completely obsesses and consumes you, and what people are loath to see because it's been such an endearing feature of our culture is that ultimately it consumes the other, the object of desire. And what will come up in the last lecture and will be probably the most contentious of of all of them, the lecture as a whole, is that um, I think the celebration of desire for its own sake has gotten wildly out of hand in our society. First it was love, and um, divorce was justified in the name of love, and then it was sexual desire even more than love, and anything was justified in the name of sexual desire, and I'm going to argue that that ultimately treats the other as object, as a means rather than an end in a him or herself, the kind of basic instinct, if you ever saw that film.
0: Dr. Neely. Uh,
2: It is the very nature of the male animal to trust. And uh, the, uh, in, the, in the system of Jim Crow, uh, black males weren't permitted to trust. And uh, if they did, in fact, they would be down. And many argue that uh, it's a good thing to have a male uh, patriarchal principle where understood that the males want to be the head of the household, at least for low status, uh, lower socioeconomic uh, males, males who are. Have an arena where they can do the big stuff. So, you know, Ralph Cramden, uh, he's a, uh, just a bus driver, but he comes home and he's the king of this castle, and a number of.
1: My my first temptation is to say that I don't see why he restricts it to African-American lower-class men. I mean, the, the desire to strut is present in all of us in one way or another. It just sometimes takes um, more so subtler pay- Look at cardinals and blue jays and peacocks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's my point precisely. Um it, I think at this point, um, it's, it's a complicated question. I think Moynihan, who made some good points, was somewhat wrong about the effect of segregation on men, because I think that there were some black bourgeois communities built up under segregation. That had a coherence that has been strongly underestimated and they were built up around schools and churches and men did play important roles in them and women as well and there was a real class system. But leave that part aside. The, the need at the moment to offer black men something in marriage is, um, and a lot of white men as well is, is seems to me blindingly clear. I, You, forgive me, because this for some will be very sensitive terrain, but once you decide that abortion is a woman's right and that the father has no say in it, um, you release men from the obligation to marry the women they impregnate. You call their fatherhood into question. You ask for um, child support payments, and if you don't get them, you ask for higher taxes so that some man will pay for them. Um, you know, it's um, women get to have the children, women get to have the jobs, women get, get, get. It. Um, m- this is no justification or excuse for male brutality. But it seems to me, and I, obviously I speak both from the kind of practical wisdom of my grandmother, which deeply influenced me, and from my own faith. Uh, people have to give in marriage on both sides. And for, for African American men to have a presence in the world, whether we call it strutting or simply giving them a job and giving them a paycheck to bring home, Seems a small price to pay for keeping young black boys out of jail and for reestablishing some coherence and mutual respect within the black community. Reverend Kim. Look, I, I should have said more about that. I tried to suggest there were examples of, I said in passing, examples of, of deep and genuine love in the Old Testament. There's much more emphasis on the love between husband and wife in the New Testament than the Old. And um the canticles and, and Song of Songs You're surely more expert than I, but, but are interpreted in a number of ways. And Solomon paid for pretty dearly for some of his loves with the destruction of the ultimate destruction of the temple and the captivity and the rest of it. So that there's, there, there's a question when the line of when love for its own sake Falls over into a decadence that, that threatens the social fabric is a very delicate line. And I would not, I think you're making an important point. I'm not fighting you, but I think we've got a question there that as a culture, we are very unwilling to face that having, in a sense, unleashed the flood. We're, we can't find anything we can say no to, the American Psychological Association has recently decided that pedophilia is not a psychological disorder it's only a problem if it affects the life of the pedophile now, so but yes, you advanced important examples of love in in the Old Testament. I still think that the David and Bathsheba is the best example as a story of what happens when passion breaks the bonds of prior commitments. I suppose the biggest misunderstanding is that so many women, and I would include myself, I'm not being the least bit condescending, especially educated women find it very difficult to accept that anyone else's judgment could be better than their own. It goes down so hard. And, you know, again, it's, it, you know, it's a personal answer. It's a question of faith. If, if you can make that leap, um, it becomes very rewarding because that simply enhances your own judgment when it's the one that comes into play, when it's, it's the one that, that carries the day. I, I think in more traditional circles, I don't want to restrict only to lower class or only to African American or whatever, but, but, Less Beltway, bi-coastal, upscale worlds. There's a lot more folk culture left. You know, boys simply are boys. Let them do it. What what difference does it make? It's not going to change anything. We're still going to decide how the money's spent. Look, that is the question with which I've been wrestling throughout the writing of these lectures. It's the one I'm forcing myself to engage in the final lecture, so I don't want to give the whole thing away, but I think marriage is also a very important form of resistance. And I think in accommodating to the culture around us, we are in danger of giving away our humanity. oh I'm not advocating living in the past as, no you're, you're absolutely right that, it's the same thing as male headship those are the abs, that's the cusp those are the fault lines yes
0: any other questions
1: Um, Only, it's again an excellent question, only in the measure that love for its own sake becomes self-reflexive more than it is about the other. In other words, you project, I've had some psychoanalytic training, you project needs and desires onto the other and the love is one, it does become an addiction or an obsession and has a very dangerous quality to it that effectively obliterates the other. The extreme form, which you never see in Courtly Love, is the stalker, is the, the person who kills the one he loves in order to possess her. Um, and that's we've seen that around Fatal Attraction was a film that dealt with those themes with the woman as the one who was obsessed. Um, the other side of courtly love, just very briefly, because we've been quite a while at this, um, that I didn't get to, since I, I wanted to set up the theme of addict, sexual addiction in a, and obsession in our own time and the primacy of desire. The other side of courtly love is, um, a cult of virginity and abstinence, and it's practically disappeared from our society. People sneer at abstinence programs for the young, but it never occurs to anyone that it is might be possible to be a loving, effective, deeply committed, giving, engaged human being and not to be sexually active. The idea that that sex is in and of itself the be-all and the end-all. It is beautiful and good and was given to us to enjoy, but there are possibilities for sacrifice in the world that enrich rather than impoverish the person who makes the sacrifice.
0: Other questions? (laughs)
2: Thank <laughs>
1: Uh the short answer is that I think it's a disastrous idea. Plain and simple. And I think part of the difference among conservatives, not the only one, but part of the difference among conservatives concerns um a traditional versus neocon. Um splits. In other words, there's there's a kind of laissez faire expediency. Um to going with the flow, let it be whatever it is is fine and but that that gives up on any aim or responsibility to help to shape the society so it'll be a better place for all its members and then there's the whole problem of whether the court should be allowed to do it in any case.
0: For, for perhaps two more questions. Yes, uh Dr. Glas. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good way of understanding it, except that I think although there are those who want to recover what we've lost, for speaking for myself, I think we face the challenge of renewing or reinvigorating what was good in the past. Um, and I stick with the importance for the culture as a whole and... Um, ultimately children, of the acknowledgement of sexual difference. And you can make a moral case, but you don't have to go to that. You can go strictly to the grounds of the ability to recognize the other as a being. And then you have the problem with homosexual marriage, that it simply carries um, me me meism to its ultimate extreme, the the point of homosexual marriage is not nearly so much the sweet, heartfelt stuff that David Brooke wrote about, that these nice people and all these children and all the rest of it. I'm sure it's true, and lots of my own friends would fall into that category, which breaks my heart. Uh, But um, the real point of the campaign for homosexual marriage comes out of the same people who give us the campaign for queer sex and sex without protection and defiance of authority for the sake of defying authority. It, it, it isn't about Hallmark cards and taking care of the kids, it really is about nihilism.
0: Well, with that provocative thought, we are going to <laughs> adjourn, but uh, I, I hope to see you back here. Uh, Wednesday, 4.30, same location, for the second in the series. And please join us for a reception in the back hall. Thank you.